look gorgeous. Thank you very much. You feel ready? I'm ready. Well, you said that with some determination. I'm ready. Okay. Whenever you're ready. Hello, 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 and welcome to another episode of A Very Special Episode, a podcast where I get to curl up on the sofa and talk TV with some of my favourite people. I'm Michael Lee Richardson. I'm a writer and youth worker based in Glasgow. And I always say based in Glasgow. I live in Glasgow. I live in Glasgow. That's where I live. I love, I laugh, and I watch television. Um, My very special guest this week is Juno Dawson, and we're talking about uh, two episodes, I guess two or three episodes of the L word from uh, the early 2000s, the lesbian soap opera from the early 2000s, uh, which I was really, really excited to talk about. There's a we're, we're mostly talking about a, a sort of ongoing plot point in the L word, so you may have to watch uh, a little bit of season four, but that's no bad thing because it's a lot, a lot, a lot of fun. Um, I had to watch it. I, I don't know if there's any way you can watch it um, as part of a streaming package, but I watched it on Amazon. Uh, and I, I bought season four for £9.99 here in the UK. Uh, money well spent, I think, and money I will be able to deduct from my taxes later this year. I'm currently in the process of getting rid of the sort of mega flu that is going around at the moment. So um, I'm, I do apologise for my my Phoebe from Friends sexy singing voice and my pug-like heavy breathing in this episode. It was not an intentional feature, but I hope it's not too distracting for you. Um, So I really had a lot of fun chatting with Juno and I think this is a really fun episode. So here we go. This is Juno Dawson. My very special guest this week is Juno Dawson. Juno is a best-selling novelist, screenwriter, journalist and a columnist for Attitude magazine. Her writing has appeared in Glamour, The Pool, Dazed and The Guardian. She's appeared on Pointless Celebrities, BBC Women's Hour, Front Row, ITV News and Channel 5 News, This Morning and Newsnight. Juno's books include the global bestsellers This Book is Gay and Clean. She won the 2020 YA Book Prize for Meat Market. She also writes for television and has multiple shows in development, both in the UK and the US. An occasional actress and model, Juno had a cameo in BBC's I May Destroy You and was the face of Jekka Cosmetics' Play Pots campaign. Her newest books are Stay Another Day, which is out now, and her first book for adults, Her Majesty's Royal Coven, is out in June 2022. Hello, Juno. Hello. Gosh, that was a very thorough introduction. Thank you. (laughs) A very thorough. uh, ripped from your website. Correct. <laughs> well done. Yeah, I am right. I am right about myself. Yeah. <laughs> I it kind of it made me realise reading that that you're the first person on the podcast who's actually been on television, uh, which is uh, probably quite an interesting thing. You were in Holby City. I did. I did a six episode story arc on Holby. I, I don't think I will be returning to television <laughs> on that side of the camera at least anytime ah. soon. That is that is not in the not in the plan for now. Not in the future. Um what was it like what's it like being on something like Holby, which is really in everyone's living room? It must be a, a very peculiar sort of fame or, or experience or notoriety. I don't know what the word is. Yeah it, it's a funny one because obviously I May Destroy You has gone like stratospheric. And, mm. and it's interesting now, you know, that people come up to me and, and they start the sentence with, I saw you in. And you think mm. it's going to finish with Holby City, but it's nearly always, I may destroy you. Oh, um, wow. But maybe that's just the kind of people I'm hanging around with. I went back to the gym last night for the first time since the pandemic. And there was a woman sort of staring at me 
um, on a treadmill and I was like oh god do I look really transgender and <laughs> she sort of she sort of nodded and she went Holby and I was like oh, wow. oh, okay <laughs> okay um, clocked clocked as Holby um, clocked for being on Holby yeah. but it was funny it was, it's a strange journey it's difficult to separate my feelings about Holby from the experience of filming Holby which was at the height of the second peak um, mm. last Christmas when everybody was locked down it felt very weird it was when London was like properly a ghost town mm. and you know Holby had to kind of ferry me from my home down on the south coast to Elstree and Boreham Wood which is where they film and then they just I was secreted away in a in like a premiere inn and I couldn't do anything else you know so it was a very very strange experience and then on set, we were still filming with the two meter rule. Oh wow! So you know when you watch those episodes, it's it's abundantly clear that nobody is within two meters of me, kind of. And yes, it was it was a very odd experience. But I will say this: the cast could not have been more lovely and welcoming, and the whole crew as well. Because I was really worried, obviously like going into a show that's been running for 20 years that it would be cliquey and that nobody would talk to me in the green room but everybody was absolutely just lovely everyone oh that's always nice to hear actually like well yeah it's always nice to hear that but then you also like to hear if everybody's been really bitchy and horrible to each other yeah, well. I just I just have not had that experience I think possibly Retur- returning drama or soap mm. opera if you will I think you are making like an episode of television every fortnight yeah you know and we're in soap operas in like Coronation Street in Hollyoaks it's even faster than that you're making like an episode every couple of days mm. but there just isn't time to be a diva I don't yes. think because I, I, you you just wouldn't get anything filmed um and of course we were all working under sort of extreme circumstances with with the pandemic as well so there was kind of like a blitz spirit I just for me it was nothing to do with Holby and everything to do with the fact I realised I'm definitely one of life's little writers. Yes. <laughs> I, li- I like being in control of things. And, and as an actor, you are so fundamentally out of control mm. that it's just not for me. Oh, oh well, good to a, a good thing to have done and something amazing to have like cut your teeth on as an actor. Oh my God, totally. And let's not forget, I May Destroy You. I, yes, think, yes. I think a lot of the success of I May Destroy You was about my two and a half minute appearance. <laughs> Definitely. I think definitely. when people think of I May Destroy You, my role as Scarlet <laughs> casting agent is is really what stands out. I mean, it was a nice thing to see, though, because I hadn't realised that you were going to be in that. And I remember watching it and be like, that's Juno Dawson. <laughs> yes, it what, is. What, what a moment. <laughs> we're going to talk a little bit about your TV tastes and then talk about your very special episode. Um, but first of all, I'm going to take you right the way back to the beginning and ask what sort of thing you liked watching when you were younger. Ooh, I watched a lot of telly when I was little. and. Mm. My first memories of TV are Doctor Who. Um, I I really vividly remember the character of Perry um, having her head shaved. As, oh, wow. as part of a brain transplant and the mad thing is when that episode went out in 1986 I would have been five wow but, wow that's very vivid but the weirdest thing is until so then later I got given I got myself the trial of a time lord box set when I was a teenager when I became like a real kind of died in the world Doctor Who fan and the scene occurred with with Perry having her brain transplant and I thought it had been a dream I thought that as a child I'd had a dream about 
a woman having her head shaved against her will. And it turned out it was something I'd seen on TV. So it was one of those childhood memories that didn't quite land, as it were. But I do, I really, really vividly remember watching Terror Hawks, which was like from the stable of Jerry Anderson, who did um, Mm. Thunderbirds and Stingray. And the 80s one was called Terror Hawks. And I remember being really, really scared. There's this monster called Shram. And I was really scared. And every time he came on, I would just go and see my mum. And she'd be, oh. and she'd be like, "Is that monster on the television?" And I'd be like, "No, <laughs> I just wanted to see you." Oh, I have no reference for Terror Hawks apart from I have a friend who, whenever he's like really hungover, or like there's a picture of me being really hungover, he'll be like, "Oh, you look like such and such from Terror Hawks." They're like oh. a puppet sort of thing. I don't know if that's a compliment. If I'm honest, no, I don't think it is. I don't think it is. Because if he means that you look like one of the Martians, they don't look good. No. <laughs> <laughs> Zelda is like the iconic Martian and like Zelda is like definitely the most iconic thing about Stingray but there's also the character of Kate Kestrel who is like like a pilot slash pop star which is oh, very wow. camp and yeah. each week she had a different coloured afro so she changed her afro to go with the colour of the clothes she was wearing. Incredible, mm-hmm. incredible. That's a commitment. That's a commitment. Um, so it's like sci-fi, is that your go-to genre? I suppose it always has been. And I wonder if that's because, you know, I kind of obviously was socialised as a boy. But, you know, I found a lot of female role models to be had within fantasy. And oh, I, kind of, wow, I yes. kind of graduated from, you know, the characters in Dungeons and Dragons or She-Ra or Tila in He-Man. Then into things like, you know round the twist and which was Mm. an australian sort of weird a bit i don't really know how to describe it sort of like a paranormal australian teen show and then like a lot of 90s kids i sort of went through the saved by the bell california dreams sister sister Mm. era and then around the time i was 13 or 14 went straight into the x-files where dana scully was like my reason for existing and seven of nine in star trek voyager as well let's not forget seven of nine wow you're nerdier than i expected you to be actually (laughs) no yeah no really really that was my 90s i had no friends and no gender identity so (laughs) so i was just yeah, I, I found, you know, I found my people kind of through kind of like that sort of nerdy, nerdy subcultures. And there were there were enough of us in my high school to be able to have a little kind of sort of like Star Trek Voyager gang. And mm. then for me, I think by the time BBC Two finally got round to airing Buffy the Vampire Slayer, I think mm-hmm. it was like 97 or 98. So I was very aware of Buffy before it actually came to British television. I was the same with Buffy. It was a, it was a I think people don't really recognise this now that it was really hard to watch something in those days. Like, I remember Buffy being on BBC Two at like six o'clock in the yeah. afternoon. And if you were like, if you were out after school, if you had something on and you missed it, then you'd missed it. And there was kind of nothing you could do about it. You just had to catch up next week. and Set your VCR. And... That was... <laughs> I, also, I remember in the end, so I think Sky One showed it before... The BBC. And so in the end, we we were poor, we didn't have Sky. So my friends up the road used to record Buffy for me. So I think from about sort of season four onwards, like 
I would get these little deliveries of videotapes <laughs> and would just pa- like binge. So I was like an early binger. I remember particularly yes. season four, like massively binging that one summer holidays, I think before I went off to university. Oh, they're, they're, yeah, I think that was the real start of binge watching as well. Mm. Like something that we'd never been able to do before. What sort of stuff do you like watching now? Do you know, my taste hasn't actually changed all that much. I think, you know, the, the literary word to describe it would be speculative. I like things mm-hmm. that have a speculative element. If if I was doing my dreary Juno Dawson roundup of the year, it would my I think my favourite would probably be Midnight Mass on Netflix. Oh wow. Um, yes, which I love just thought show. was really classy. Yes. It got completely overshadowed by Squid Game. And they came out on the same day, which is I mm. think a shame. Because I actually Mike Flanagan's output for Netflix I think has been really top notch, actually. I, I think I didn't love Bly Manor as much as I loved Hill House. Yeah. But, you know, I just you know, right now I'm really interested in what Mike Flanagan is doing in that it, it's genuinely scary, it's philosophical, it's always really character driven in a way that Ryan Murphy stuff often isn't, kind of. <laughs> and so, yeah, I'm just I'm a massive, massive fan of everything that Flanagan is, is working on. I did love Squid Game, but I didn't love it quite as much as Midnight. Just Midnight Mass was a lot quieter as well. Like it took a few episodes to know, to sort of figure out what was happening. And I think in a way that you can only do on something like Netflix when you've maybe got a bit more of somebody's attention. Uh, but yeah, I love that show. And the last couple of episodes of that are absolutely bonkers. Extraordinarily like, bonkers. Yeah. Such an exercise in like delayed gratification. Right. But I think that shows where Flanagan is at with his sort of collaboration with Netflix now. Because mm. I know, so I'm, I have very shows in development for TV if I was to go to a commissioner and say oh and in episode 4 there's like a 20 minute sequence where two people just talk about what they think happens when you die yes. and it's essentially <laughs> written as two 10 minute monologues like yes. you'd be laughed out the room yes. and so I, I love that Netflix has entrusted Flanagan to do this kind of the pace of it is like audaciously slow mm. and and I think good because actually now we're, we're treated as an audience we're treated slightly like we have ADHD like yes. you know and I've been in meetings where like what's going to happen at the end of episode one to like what's going to happen at the end of the first 10 minutes to make sure people watch <laughs> the 11th minute and like yes. can we not just trust in the concept that people will want to watch from one minute to the next kind of yes you know like a, a, a minute nine someone has to die you know I just, <laughs> i'm like wow okay yeah I, and i think i i think i've had those i've had those meetings as mm. well and i think there is a like lack of what's the i think there is a lack of trust in audiences but i think audiences like i think a lot of audiences like that kind of slowness especially now um for sort of i think for obvious reasons post pandemic i think people are kind of maybe looking for things that are a bit sort of meatier to get their teeth into and but aren't just constantly throwing things at your face all the time yeah i mean i i enjoyed i didn't like it as much as the internet but i enjoyed white lotus as well you know and i Mm. thought white lotus kind of is a show where nothing really happens and actually when stuff does happen i kind of wish it hadn't if i'm honest yes (laughs) like it's it's when when the plot kicks in in white lotus that's when i think it kind of drops off the rails a little bit Mm. it was so much about relationships i think that like and just like being trapped with a bunch of people yeah <laughs> even if it's in this beautiful place and trapped by their trapped by their own sort of machinations as well the fact they've created mm. this cage of their own building and that they're all stuck in their egos in lots of ways and i thought that worked really well just as a character study and then all of a sudden all this crazy heist 
stabbing nonsense kicked in and I was like, no, no need, no, no need. I did like the sort of orgy bit when the guy, the the guy that was running the hotel was having a sort uh, of yes. drug fueled orgy in his office. Brilliant. See, that, that kind of stuff is bonkers, you know, and I, I yeah. love that stuff. It, it was, it was, and as well, the, the story of how White Lotus came to be is almost as interesting as the show, which is oh. that HBO needed something that could be entirely shot in Hawaii because oh. they could quarantine people on and off Hawaii. So they could essentially ensure it could be a COVID free environment. And it had to be six episodes and it had to reference Black Lives Matter without being about Black Lives Matter. Wow. And the fact that they literally gave it to a white writer called Mike yes. White is, <laughs> is, is, is interesting. But I thought, you know, it, it did have something to say about privilege. No, I agree. I agree. It was it was more subtle than, say, L Word Generation Q, which obviously we're going to come to <laughs> shortly. But um, it was, yeah, the the, tre- the treatment, particularly of the the people indigenous to Hawaii, I thought wasn't great. But oh well, still, I'd, oh, well. I'd still I'd rather watch White Lotus than I would a lot of things. Look at it that. Yes, I, me too. What's your comfort watch? What's the like show that you go back to? Well, until, it was Buffy, um, <laughs> but obviously in a post Me Too world, you know, it's a shame Buffy doesn't have a creator. <laughs> But, you know, I, I'm sex. Well, obviously, I have a whole podcast about Sex in the City, and I find it doesn't matter how many times I watch Sex in the City, I never tire of it. Mm. And, and I know it's crap, but there is something about friends. You know, friends, you know, I was in year nine when it started. It lasted, it bridged the most difficult years of my life. Mm. And when it wrapped up, I was in, I think I was finishing out like my teacher training. Did it finish the year I did my teacher training or something? So yes, yeah, so it ran from when I was 14 to 24. Mm. So like what a, what a weird decade kind of. So there'll always be a place for friends, but actually in recent years, I think Shit's Creek has kind of <gasps> moved into that place in my heart that Shit's that friends used to fill. And I think I'm on my third time around with Schitt's Creek now and, oh, and wow. I just I find it so warm and lovely yes I I, I, I agree I, I do think people are a little bit sniffy about friends and a little bit um I think there's a bit of a snobbishness about friends I get 100%, it 100% yeah yeah I get it's sort of problematic elements but I think as a as a sitcom it's like it is funny and it's good and it, it's it's all we had at the time. It's the, I think it's the best we had at the time. Absolutely. As well. When when you compare it to some of its contemporaries, it definitely holds it better. And I don't think anybody ever gave those six performers the credit they had in that all of them. The comic timing mm. is just phenomenal i mean yeah. i think jennifer aniston in particular is you know i think she's extraordinary in the, in that show you Absolutely. know the character of rachel could be a really unforgiving character mm. um but she's genius yeah she's brilliant she's brilliant and uh lisa kudrow as well i think is i mean to look at what she's gone on to do since mm-hmm. friends is pretty impressive i would say well valerie cherish i oh mean that, that i mean yeah i there's nothing really left to say about um the comeback but it is it is perfect. Perfect television. What's something that you watch a lot of that's outside of your wheelhouse or something people wouldn't expect you to watch? <laughs> it's, it's, well, apparently I'm not, I'm nerdier than people think. So maybe yeah, everything, right. maybe everything I've just said is, is going to surprise people. <laughs> Cause I did, I, you know, I was fully obsessed with Game of Thrones as well. Mm. Um, and I, I do, I, I love me some kind of obscene budget fantasy epic i'm gonna i am gonna dip my toe into wheel of time i think soon to see to see what that's all about but i think i'll tell you what what certainly surprised me more than anybody else was how much i got into the crown oh wow yes because 
I'm not a royalist. I'm not going to go out on a limb and say that one. And I really didn't think for a second it would be for me. But I really enjoyed it because it's so soapy. So soapy. And actually Succession, again, another one. I had to be dragged kicking and screaming to Succession. Because just on paper, like rich Murdoch-esque media people being thoroughly irredeemable wasn't going to be my jam at all. Mm. And yet I think it is one of the best things on television. I'm still in the process of being dragged to that. I just haven't... I haven't made the leap and I know I will at some point mm. and watch it but there's something yeah I think I'm in the same position where I'm like why would I why would I want to watch that that's not it just doesn't appeal to me but honestly it's it's its, it's own little island because it doesn't make any sense you know <laughs> it, again it's a bit it's again it's like that conversation with commissioners so what you're saying is every single character is loathsome exactly (laughs) what I'm saying and yet you do find your emotions and your allegiances in particular kind of pushed and pulled um so in that regard it's it feels in some ways like Game of Thrones in that you're never quite sure who to trust or who to believe in and yes it's absolutely a satire on the world we live in today as well And, and I think that's part of the appeal too which is these are some dark times so it needs a very dark comedy to reflect maybe the darkness of our times Mm. and it is a comedy but without a doubt it's a comedy yeah I think that's maybe the part that I'm not that hasn't crossed over for me the fact that it's funny like I think a lot of people are really focused on the the drama elements and Uh the sort of machinations that are going on but yeah I, I think I need to check it out for myself and See what it's all about. What's an iconic TV moment you go back to again and again? Oh my God. Where, I mean, where to begin? The, the, ones, <laughs> the ones that I talk about endlessly with my friends was, was obviously the ultimate. It was Cheryl Cole versus Tracy Cohen on the X Factor series. Oh, 10, wow. which is, Whenever you're ready. I'm ready. You said that with some determination. I'm ready. Whenever you're ready. I mean, just when we sometimes we fall into loops where we'll just do that for about 20 minutes. Um, Even better if somebody goes into it without being aware, just saying, I'm ready. (laughs) To which one of us will say, You said that with some determination. (laughs) And then and then off we go for several hours. So there's that one. There's obviously we were rooting for you from America's next top model. A beautiful monologue. Yeah, which I've performed at a cabaret night as well. It was really good. A dramatic reading of Tyra's (laughs) rant at Tiffany. Those are the two which really stick out in my mind. Those are the two which I think I've used a lot. And then obviously a lot of Drag Race moments as well. Yes, yes. And that's if you have a group of queer friends and if they do not speak Drag Race, (laughs) you know, you're going to be in trouble. What do you talk about? What do you talk about? Well, it's quite nice. And so what's happened is actually a lot of kind of my queer adjacent friends basically realised it was like Duolingo. They were going to have to watch Drag Race <laughs> if they wanted to be able to communicate on any sort of meaningful level with us. In that sometimes and obviously at the time we made fun of Laganja Estranja for kind of speaking in this kind of like RuPaulese <laughs> language. But actually if you She was ahead down, of her time. She was because <laughs> if you sit down in a room of queer people, it is just like Furbies <laughs> making making noise at each other like, yes girl. Girl, look how orange you look, party. I'm from Azusa. <laughs> Not today, Satan. And you're just kind of like just going again, just like all these little catchphrases kind of going off. But again, 
the good news is, is that, you know, Drag Race has been going for so long now that there truly is a soundbite for any eventuality. For any occasion. For any occasion, you know, something will fit. It's going to be fine. Oh, what, a, what a time to be alive in the time of RuPaul's Drag Race and her ever-expanding empire. She never sleeps, Rachel. <laughs> Yeah, it's yeah, it's the Rube, the mass industrial RuPaul complex. Yeah. <laughs> what are you watching right now? Well, this very moment. Yes. Um, well, actually, no. Weirdly, this is and so this is how we've come to this episode, which is I am mm. I'm seven episodes into season two of the L Word Generation Q, <sighs> in which I am. What is my, the, this relationship I have with the L Word? <laughs> you know, I, it's it's so odd, and <laughs> obviously we live in the time of shows being rebooted from the dead often for no reason <laughs> like i was going past a billboard that dexter's back oh. who who was asking for that <laughs> who was asking for fresh episodes of dexter <laughs> it feels like it finished about five years ago yeah i, I don't really get it and, and they're rebooting true blood oh like, wow no really no, need. no, no one need. needs this this is so strange and you know i i don't understand um why and i understand the logic behind the l word which was eileen chaken quite rightly said you know we finished this show in 2008 and there hasn't been a lesbian on telly since mm. which isn't strictly true because obviously we had orange is the new black and i do think orange is the new black in some ways was like the spiritual child of the L word. Now that you um, say that, absolutely, it absolutely is. Yeah. And obviously there was meant to be a spin-off from the L word called The Farm that would have seen Alice Piazeki go to prison oh. um, for, for the murder of Jenny Schechter. And Spoiler he, alert. They, they filmed a pilot. It had Famke Janssen in as well, and the pilot was never picked up. Oh. Um, oh. So we we nobody has ever seen The Farm, as it was called. But then it feels like because Eileen Chaikin was involved in in Orange Is the New Black as well, I believe. In fact, I'm sure she was. Mm. And so, um, and so you can kind of see that the, the the notion of the comings and goings of a women's prison was very much on her mind, kind of around 2010. Mm. And and so that was where Orange Is the New Black kind of stemmed from. Although obviously it's based on a book as well. And so yeah, so I find myself right now back with Generation Q. I haven't seen any of Generation Q yet, and I'm definitely going to watch it. I think it's going yeah. to be my like Christmas holidays. Yeah, because season one and two are on Sky TV and now right now. Mm. I'm so interested to know what you think of it. It's so crunchy. It's not it hasn't been an easy birth uh, as of yet they've not announced whether or not there's going to be a season three and it's interesting because it, they always said with the l word they almost went from season to season and they never knew if they were going to be renewed yes. for more you know they were it was never a big smash hit kind of runaway success it was always had to be a bit scrappy mm. and of course the first season the first run did six seasons and was then wound down and now we've had these extra two seasons but they're they're very much it's a child of its time it's very concerned with identity it's sort of an apology in some ways that's kind of the sense that i've got that it's yes that it's yeah. sort of trying to get some of the stuff right that the l word did not but that in itself does not make for an entertaining television <laughs> no. series and that no. i think that was possibly the problem with season one mm. which is it kind of forgot to tell a story because it was so busy hurling dozens of new characters at the screen and um, so, some of which to my mind didn't stick it has to be said that there are only three original l word characters back initially in alice bet 
and Shane. And so the rest of the cast were these new characters and we were, I think, expected to like them very quickly and that didn't necessarily happen. Mm. So it was, yeah, it was a difficult one. Season two, I think, has been better in that it feels soapier. And I think, you know, having just rewatched the episodes that we're about to talk about today, mm-hmm. the L word was soap. It yeah, was yeah, it's a big, glossy lesbian soap. And yeah, I'm not quite sure what it was season one was, was necessarily trying to do it was it was tricky but then i, I you know i remember the, the first the, the pilot episode of the l word wasn't very good either it actually it took, it took a little while for the l word to warm up agreed well. agreed yeah. yes it does take a while for it to to find that soapiness and just really lean into it i think and i think as well it took I think Jennifer Beals as Bette Porter is extraordinary mm. but by season two she's fully warmed up of Generation yes. Q and she feels like the Bette you remember mm. um, and my theory is Jennifer Beals as Bette Porter is best when she's ranting about art <laughs> like genuinely <laughs> no I, I think I would agree actually and I've got mm. I think I've got some stuff to say on that for the, the episode itself because it mm. did strike me um while I was watching it shall we shall we move into your very special episode let's, or episodes it, yeah. episodes yeah sorry so this this one's a slightly tricky one I've chosen like a plot a story arc more than an episode <laughs> um, but it was a, a very special story arc yes the sounder saga I think the we sounder can saga. Oh, sounder. Oh, what is your, you've already talked a little bit about the the L word, but what's your relationship with it? Like, when were you watching it? Well, do you know, I think this is a big part of my affection for the L word in that I was introduced to the L word by a very, very good friend of mine, a musician called Stuart Warwick. And he said, you've got to watch this. At the time he was a musician, but also like working in like a blockbuster video kind of. And he'd been watching the DVDs in (laughs) store. And he was like, I've discovered the most insane TV series ever. You have got to watch it. It's called the L word. And I was aware of it and I'd seen it being written about in heat but again I didn't have cable at the time and I think it was shown on living in this country so I had never been able to see it so he got me the series one box set from from blockbuster and lent it to me and this would have been around like 2007 and so I had like I think I had four seasons like ready to binge Mm. which was so amazing and so I did I properly mainlined the first four (laughs) seasons of the L word in a matter of weeks and that was just a really nice time in my life you know, I was young. I had money for the first time, really. I was, I was working as a teacher at the time. I'd found this really amazing queer family in Brighton. I was out all the time. I was drunk all the time. I was basically living in the L word. It's, it's essentially yes. what it was. In that everybody was sleeping with people, the wrong people. And yeah, it, it was. I was living in a soap opera. And I think that's why this series, the, the initial run really resonated with me. I, I think that's why it really endures as well. Like that kind of, yeah, because I think I think you can watch it and say, this is soapy and ridiculous. And this is not how real people behave i know people who live this life i know a lot of queer people that's so shane you know we we are we we all know shane i was definitely an alice i wish i was a jenny Schechter, but i'm an alice i think (laughs) i'm definitely a jenny Schechter. good for you good for you which is not which is not flattering considering the episodes we're talking about well this is why these episodes in particular are really interesting for me because this is for me slightly where the l word jumps the shark and Mm. it doesn't really Really come back down to earth um, in that, you know, series four is the last series where 
they're in the real world because then in series five, it's all on the set of the film of their lives. And yes. it kind of, it becomes quite heightened after this series. Yes, yes. Shall I shall I introduce the concept of Sounder? <laughs> yes. What, what's the context we need for this? Okay, so the story so far is um, <laughs> Jenny Schechter is this dark little gothic creature who we initially meet. There, there are so many incarnations of Jenny Schechter. She's like Doctor Who in that she, rege- <laughs> she regenerates quite often. We initially meet her as a young, straight writing student who is in a straight relationship with Eric Mabius um, from Ugly Betty. And by the end of the pilot, she's had her first lesbian experience with an Italian contessa called Marina. Um, I mean, who, who hasn't? I mean, who, who among who us? Yeah. <laughs> and so during series one, she comes out essentially because she realizes she is hopelessly in love with Marina. Um, in season two, she cuts off all her hair and we learn she was the victim of childhood sexual abuse and she kind of reconciles her stance as a victim. I think Jenny in season two is the best she was and I think that's when mm-hmm. they best had a grip on the character. Um, she doesn't have an awful lot to do in season three. She makes friends with a trans man and she dates a trans man called Max. <laughs> and then in series four, so all the way through she's been a writer She's written about the gentle manatees of Florida. And um, (laughs) at some point between series three and four, she's had a short story published or she's written a book. And it's it's kind of come out of nowhere has this novel that or this this is it a short story collection or something that she's written? It's unclear. It's unclear. She's done some writing and it gets a review. No, it must be a novel. I think she's written a novel. And it gets reviewed in the New York Times by a journalist called Stacey Merkin. Fucking who hell. is played by <laughs> who is played by Heather Matarazzo um, of Scream 3 and The Princess, the Princess Diaries. Diaries, various things. <laughs> and Stacey Merkin of The Vagina Wig, as Jenny comes to know her as. The Vagina Wig writes a snipey review. Um, Actually, it's not even a really bad review. It's kind of like, (laughs) it's not a bad review, but Jenny takes massive personal issue with the way she is presented, basically as kind of sort of damaged and a broken version of femininity and she sits down so initially Jenny is very in awe of Stacey Merkin and she does that thing as an author you must be very mindful not to do which is never fucking trust a journalist Um, (laughs) media training 101 because of course they've been trained to make you think that you're their friend and that they're not going to do anything to fuck you over reader I have been fucked over Um, (laughs) and um, then Jenny so when this review comes out Jenny is furious she's livid and full of rage and Sybil Shepherd's character Phyllis <laughs> tells Jenny it's a shame you can't you know get your revenge on Stacey Merkin who has claimed that her girlfriend is basically a saint she has said you know the world would be better if everybody was like my girlfriend who is this vet who is a saint um and so Jenny the seeds are sown of Jenny's revenge and Jenny decides she's gonna fuck with Stacey Merkin by kind of seducing her girlfriend I guess but in order to seduce the girlfriend, she goes about it in the most macabre way <laughs> possible. And it's not good, Jenny. No, it's, it's not good. It's not great, but also watching it back, not as bad, I think, as I remembered. I mean... <laughs> still not great, Michael. <laughs> still not great. <laughs> maybe maybe this is me as a Jenny Schechter realising things about myself. <laughs> 
Yeah. I, I yeah. mean, we've all anyway. want, we've all wanted revenge. We all recognise the the worst parts of ourselves sometimes. But mm-hmm. never have I gone to such extraordinary lengths <laughs> to do it. So to get an introduction with Lin- Lindsay, I want to say is the girlfriend. Is that right? Am I getting her name right? I think so. yes, it's Lindsay. Lindsay. So to get an audience with veterinarian Lindsay, Jenny goes to an animal rescue shelter where she claims to be called Debbie Oxnard <laughs> to to adopt. She specifically asked to adopt an elderly dog, a senior dog. And she comes across Sounder, who is some sort of like greyhound or lurcher breed, who is basically dying. So she adopts Sounder, who pukes on her feet and takes Sounder to the vets, where Lindsay does confirm that Sounder is dying, basically. Yes. So Jenny doesn't kill a healthy dog. <laughs> so let, no. Let's get that straight right from the outset. <laughs> Jenny, Jenny merely takes a dying dog to a vet. Yes. yes. <laughs> that's, a, that's kind of, because I, re- I think I hadn't remembered that Sounder was going to die anyway. Mm-hmm. And and Jenny's just allowing Sounder to be part of the narrative. <laughs> and so so yeah, so basically this she uses Sounder to worm her way between Lindsay and Stacy. And sure enough, she sees the cracks between Lindsay and Stacy, which do exist already, but mm-hmm. Jenny exploits the, the weaknesses in their relationship and splits them apart. Although of course Later on, it does backfire quite spectacularly for Jenny. Yes. But um, um, <laughs> n- no good comes from her machinations. But but yeah, th- this this for me, it was... It's difficult, isn't it? When you, when you have a character in a long-running show, is to kind of keep them consistent. And Jenny Schechter is surely one of the least consistent characters. Definitely one of the least consistent. Although I, I, I would argue that the L word at this point even wasn't that long running like there's like 12 episodes a season Uh and it had been going for four seasons so there's not that much of her to get wrong but this feels peculiar i mean and it's interesting as well because people hated jenny Schechter, and they hated her from the first episode and even after the pilot there were attempts to kind of make her more likable and i think by this point having tried for three seasons to make Jenny likeable. I think there was some sort of meeting between Mia Kirshner, who plays Jenny, and Eileen Chaikin, who created Jenny, where I think this is the point where they just said, fuck it. People yes. hate Jenny, let's make her a villain. <laughs> yeah, let's make her kill a dog. Yeah. And I really believe that. I really think they they tried to make her likeable in series two and three, and then they were like, do you know what? Let's not, because for series four, five, and six, she becomes increasingly monstrous. Yes, yes. like comedy villain. Because she, she truly, she. I mean, to the extent that the entire of the sixth series is who killed Jenny Schechter. <laughs> and they never really, from what I remember, they never really confirm. I don't, I don't want to do spoilers, but it is confirmed no. in Generation Q. There is an explanation. <gasps> That's yeah, not I'm not one that Mia Kirshner <laughs> likes, and I will I will leave you with that. Oh, brilliant! I'm going to watch it mm. now. <laughs> I think you have to you have to watch five episodes to find out what happened to Jenny Schechter. Wow, wow. Um, I th- I think part of the maybe part of the problem with her as well is that she does sort of come in as the audience surrogate yes. in season mm-hmm. one, and I think they quite quickly realise that we don't really need a surrogate. Like the these women are lesbians is not that complicated no. of a 
premise, but it was at the time, actually. Like, I think, you know, you, you probably felt like you needed that at the time. And I see why you would do that. But I think because with a different actor as well, it could have been a very different situation. Some some character, some actors do every girl really, really well. And mm. um, I'm not sure Mia Kirshner is one of them because what, yeah. whatever you see her in, she is very haunted. She she yes. she plays haunted really really well. And and so even from and she she became known as Whispering Jenny in series one <laughs> because she was prone to whispering. Like I, I feel so destroyed by every time I look at you. And and so she was hard to transplant yourself into. Especially when Alice and Dana are right there, you know, who are so girl next door, kind of. Yes, yes. So yeah, you're right. We didn't need the kind of the Rose Tyler character because <laughs> you know these were all very relatable women. You know, we you you know Tina and Tina and Bet were mummy and daddy, and then like Shane, Alice, and Dana were kind of the kids. You know, we mm. we didn't really need Jenny because we already had this very well established kind of found family kind of. But I do, despite everything, despite Sounder, I do love Jenny, and for me, she was always the highlight. Absolutely, yeah, she's my favorite because she's so at the centre of a lot of the mad stuff that happens in the L word, uh-huh. I think. Because I did yeah. a Jenny Schechter. So let, let's <laughs> we forget that around the time these episodes were airing, I had just sat down to write my first novel and mm. I did a Les Girls. I stuck all my friends in my first novel and it has caused yeah. trouble because oh, wow. like Les Girls, there is an adaptation in the works right now with the BBC of Pike, and there was an issue where very early and I said, oh, and you know these characters are based on my high school friends and the producers faces dropped because of course here we have a potential lawsuit Mm. so we had to get my three best friends from high school to sign release waivers that they that any likeness to them is purely coincidental and they cannot sue they have relinquished their rights over hollow pike although actually the, the adaptation is nothing like us at school now none of nobody would recognize those characters mm. as being my friends but you know very like jenny Schechter, did i ask my friends if they wanted to be in a novel did i fuck <laughs> so there's definitely there's definitely something of the jenny Schechter in me as well that kind of artistic ambition i don't have boundaries similarly to Jenny Schechter um (laughs) I am ruthless and it's funny because as a boy being ruthless is a good thing as a girl you're a bitch um Mm. and I've seen it happen with authors publishing does not like ambitious women whatever it says whatever it says I've heard editors, publicists, other authors refer to authors in in my sphere who want not just to have a book out, but want it to be a bestseller. You know, that they're mm. a bitch. They're a bitch. I, I think that's that's what was that's what struck me when I kind of went back and watched these episodes. And I did I I watched these two, so Lay Up and Les Girls, and then I've watched all of season four now. Uh what kind of struck me is how much like being an artist is all over the L word in quite a specific way. Mm-hmm. Like the there's the the sort of I mean, I forget who the men are on the L word, but there's Imagine the guy that's being like a man more... on the L word. <laughs> they're so disposable. Every year they just bring in there can only be one and he's not gonna yes. be around for very long. And why 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 is he there ever? Because who's who Mangus, like the you, Manny. Yeah. Mangus the Manny. Yeah. 
So there's there's the guy that's the um musician, uh-huh. and then there's Bet working in the art gallery, and her oh this is terrible I could forget the the woman's name, but the girl that she's the the woman that she's sort of jo- Jody um, Jody Lerner. Yes, yes. And then there's obviously Jenny, and like Jenny's publishing short stories, and she's got a novella out, and like I, I think there's something about it where the like uh, there was something very realistic in this episode where it took um the other the other sort of girls to it took them two episodes to realize that jenny's story was about them because mm-hmm. none of them had actually Ready. read it fucking jenny <laughs> Which I can... i'll fucking kill her <laughs> i love that so much oh my god the the bit it's the bit with alice where it's like um oh is this a writing lesson from jenny <laughs> i'll get a pen. <laughs> It's so so oh, but there's there, there's art all over it in a way that like it's really really important to their lives, mm-hmm. but not. I, I I think I've never known another soap to have this many sort of art driven storylines because there's a, a really weird storyline in one of these where Bet is showing like a Republican guy around the uh, the sort of school yeah. that she works in, and somebody's made a like George Bush themed sculpture, and the guy's really offended by it and it's just like this is this is quite strange stuff to be in this very soapy relationshipy world I, I think. quite like it and I wonder if it's a reflection of the art scene in LA mm. because now I've never been to LA but obviously it is a town filled with writers who have yes. who have gone there to try and make it as screenwriters and I know you know many many of my English sort of screenwriting friends are like right I'm gonna go do it I'm gonna go do a pilot season in LA and so I think it's strange because in Generation Q LA looks quite different and I and I I've never been there so I don't know if it's a reflection of how LA has changed but I think Mm. the original run was set largely around the West Hollywood area I think which is notoriously queer and it felt quite local and quite small and quite cosy whereas the LA of Generation Q feels very urban and very kind of downtown skyscrapers Mm. and it feels less cosy as a result it feels like it's more maybe that's what maybe they wanted it to feel more sprawling LA is a really big fucking city maybe they wanted it to feel Mm. bigger um, and less Mm. less cosy which I think was a mistake because I think soaps should always feel cosy Um, and I think the art scene throughout those first six seasons and in the second series of Generation Q where the art scene makes a comeback in a really big way and um, it feels like the scene the scene in Layer where Bet's giving Bet's giving an, a lecture and she just casually name drops Jeanette Winterson yes. and, and gives this quote about how art moves us away from the material into the sublime or something and you're kind of like this is a writer who loves art and this is I, somebody in charge must have loved contemporary art as much as the character of Bet Porter does but I, I love and some of my favourite stuff in the L word is when Bet is moved by art and being mm. moved by art is something that Jennifer Beals does does really well but yes and then Jenny's Jenny's exploits in literature very quickly she parlays into screenwriting and then obviously in series five they're making the film of Les Girls with with Tina (laughs) Tina who we've always known as this kind of like stay at her mom suddenly becomes a Hollywood studio exec which is quite quite a mood (laughs) a glow up for Tina (laughs) she's kind of a boring character she's one of my least favorites bless her yeah although oh it's so tricky and I know this is this is the big debate amongst fans of the L word which is are you 
too stunning Tina and Bet, or are you not? Now, I think there is something about those two together. I think they have really wonderful chemistry. And I think I was shipping them, to be honest. But I know a lot of people don't. A lot of people, it's not so much that they hate Tina or Bet, it's that they hate Tina and Bet together. I think I'm on that, that side, because they're just not... Uh, you know, two people who are very good together and in love is often not that interesting to Oh, watch. it makes dreadful TV. Absolutely <laughs> yeah. dreadful television. So I'm fully with you on that one. I do think they're great in that sort of, yeah, the, the two mums to the rest of them mm-hmm. role. But uh, in terms of storylines of their own, I much prefer Bet when she's off kind of sowing her wild oats and having a lovely time. <laughs> Yeah, and you're right. I mean, a lot has been said about the the sins of the L word and the things it got wrong. They were mostly very thin. They were very femme. It was problematic in that they literally cast a half Indian actress to play a Latina. The issue around Max's transition, there was some absolutely wild dialogue about around Max's decision to transition with Kit telling him you're giving up the most precious thing in the world. You know, know, nothing, nothing can be like being a woman. Well, yes, unless you're a man, Kit. <laughs> you just... It's absolutely wild, but when I watch that Max stuff, I'm like, this is so of its time. It's so of its time. But there are people who talk like that, and there are people who say things like that. I mean, you only need to go on Twitter, yeah. and you can see a lot worse oh than God, that being yeah. said to trans men. By um, J.K. Rowling. Like, I think, yet yeah, the L word is the least of our issues. And actually, do you know what? As a trans person, I I was never outraged by the Max plotline. Don't get me wrong, mm. there was some choice, choice dialogue, but his masculinity was never called into question, you know. To, no. to, and actually, and interestingly, I'll tell you someone who never doubted Max was Jenny Schechter. Yes, yes. <laughs> I think there, were, there was some later stuff, way, way later, where Jenny said some dodgy shit around the time Max was pregnant. Actually, it's funny, Max, there's never an explanation in Generation Q of where Max has gone. The actor who plays Max has come out as non-binary since and uses they, them pronouns, because that was was a controversy as well. At the time, the actor who Mm. played Max didn't identify as trans, but but now they do. So actually, history has kind of righted that wrong all by itself, Mm. kind of. Yeah, Generation Q has a much more diverse cast. I find it a shame that they have two trans actresses and neither of them play trans parts i find Mm. it i see you know when you can see what they're trying to do but you're like i still want to know where trans women fit into this world and and i don't have the answer for that jamie clayton is great from sensei is really cool as tess but i think we're led to believe she's cis as is sophie giannamore's character as well so it's kind of like now maybe do you know what maybe it's because in the united states nobody is having the conversation about our trans women women So, no, so it's almost no. like they don't see how needed that conversation is for us here in the UK, whereby, you know, the notion that you would have a trans lesbian is just fundamentally outrageous, according to the BBC, you know. Mm. So if if the character of Tess in Generation Q is trans, the fact that she has relationships with cis lesbians, it's a really positive thing. And that's why it's a shame for me that in an attempt to be like, 
trans actors shouldn't have to play trans roles. Mm. I think they missed an opportunity to tell a really interesting story about trans lesbians. I think so. I think so. I'll have to go back and watch it though, Mm. definitely. What's the stuff that you really like in this episode? Or these two episodes? (laughs) Well, it's definitely because, do you know, when when I picked these episodes, obviously it was because of the sounder Stacey Merkin vagina wig (laughs) plot and and what it means for Jenny in terms of her being an out-and-out villain. But Mm. there's so much stuff around this that I had forgotten about. The basketball game. Yes. I love Pappy. Oh, God. The character... (laughs) Well, again... It, it, one character who was even more hated than Jenny was Pappy's, and she was unceremoniously dumped. In series five, there is no explanation of where her character has gone. She just oh, vanishes, Pappy. gone, forgotten. Uh. And then she she rematerializes once with some explanation about where she's been. But um, yeah, Pappy, don't get attached to Pappy. <laughs> yeah, the Pappy stuff, which is, again has history has deemed it offensive in that you did have an Indian woman playing a Latin American character and it really plays up to stereotypes about Latina American women, the cornrows, the jewellery, the attitude. It was not good. Not good. And actually Sarah Shahi, who played Carmen, was also not Latina. (laughs) So so you had two two actors playing Latina characters, neither of which were Latina. I think Sarah Shahi is like of Persian origin. So yeah, that was a forgot. But I do I just love I love um that obviously we, in this episode we got to meet Jodie Lerner as well, played by the mm. wonderful Marley Matnin, the um, deaf actress who won the Oscar. And that feels like, you know, a little bit on the nose sometimes, but it feels ahead of its time to have like a, a deaf actress playing a deaf character and just being allowed to be a sexy lesbian. A sexy lesbian. And really, <laughs> I mean, very empowered as well. And kind of, mm. so I think for the criticisms that the L word gets, it was doing a lot of stuff that was way ahead of its time. It really, really, Yes. I'd forgotten how sexy it was in places as well, that it was never afraid to show women having sex and experiencing pleasure and talking about how to get pleasure through sheer fluke. I'd forgotten these episodes with the You Look So Shane, You Look Very Shane episodes with the Calvin Klein ad. Um, <laughs> oh my gosh. I mean, yes. because at that point, Catherine Menig had become so iconic in this show. You know, like the L word is Shane, and it wouldn't be the L word if you didn't have Shane in it. I'd forgotten how boring the Shay storyline was. Oh Ugh. god, yes, who cares? Yeah. Who oh cares? god. We're not here to see this. We just want to see Shane. It's really difficult because obviously so Shane kind of has the reverse journey to Jenny in that to begin with Shane is meant to be a bit of a villain. She's a heartbreaker who just destroys lives wherever she goes with her powerful sex appeal. But I don't, I don't care for let's make Shane, let these very over attempts to kind of like humanize Shane by giving her responsibility for a small child. Boring. It's it's boring. <laughs> but I, I mean, I get it. I get it. And I, I hadn't watched the L word. I didn't watch it when it was on. I watched it a few years later, like on streaming. Uh-huh. And watching it after the time, I sort of hadn't realised how many of my lesbian friends had just based their whole personality and look and hair on Shane. <laughs> like, it's just like, yes. oh, <laughs> now this makes sense. Yeah. It's, yeah, I mean, God, hair straighteners. What did we do before hair straighteners? <laughs> but yeah, that that hair. So I was in this country. So there was the Shane in America. And then in this country, we had the Alex Parks. Can the you Alex remember Parks, from, from yes. Fame Academy? 
<laughs> so they're, they're similar but subtly different the Shane is a little bit longer um, the mm-hmm. Alex Parks was a little bit taller I think oh wow mm. wow what a time I mean the fashion in this is oh chef's kiss like there's a, a scene when Alice and Shane are going to like the lesbian club mm-hmm. um, <laughs> with Papi and like they both show up in, I think they're both in waistcoats and Alice is wearing a hat that almost everyone comments on. <laughs> like, I love your hat. And it's fucking horrendous. <laughs> what, what, what were we doing? How were we ever attracted to each other? Oh, the noughties. It was a different time, wasn't it? It was the, a different time. Shane, it was, so the era of the Alexander McQueen low, low rise jeans. Mm, and so obviously mm. Shane has the most incredible sort of like lithe body and just the jeans just a good three inches of hip exposed at all times. Very transphobic. Yes. Those, yeah, those are not trousers for trans people. <laughs> um, what do you make of Sybil Shepherd being in this? Something else I had forgotten. Yeah, me too. It's odd. I, I think, oh, I don't want to be mean, but it feels like no. the show never quite commits to her and she never quite commits to the show. Her character dips in and out throughout. Her character ends up with Jane Lynch, amazingly. Oh, um, who, yes. Who pre- Sue Sylvester, she has a recurring role in the L word. But yeah, it feels like because she is, she becomes a series regular. In series five, she's a series regular. And, you know, they, they attempt to give her story arcs, but it never quite lands. Mm. It's an, I think it's an interesting choice for an actress like of, you know, Sybil Shepherd was famous yeah. at the time and nobody else in the L, in the L word is. Oh, really. Jennifer Beals. She's the woman Jennifer from Beals, Flashdowns. Sorry. Sorry. I do, I'm corrected. Apart from Jennifer Beals. It, it doesn't feel like that kind of show. And then Sybil Shepherd turns up and it's quite a, yeah, it's noticeable. Like you can you see the You know what? You're very right. Yeah, which is sometimes a character, an actor comes with almost too much baggage. Mm. And I think he might have a point. I think possibly when you know someone as well as we sort of perceive that we know Sybil Shepherd, it's hard to join a cast and even harder to join a cast after four seasons as well. Yes. I think bringing in, I don't know, I mean, sometimes it works. Look at Anya in Buffy the Vampire Slayer. You don't need to be there from the beginning to feel like part of the furniture. But for every Anya, there is a Riley. (laughs) Just just leave it there. Oh, I'm a Riley apologist. Oh, I would not get me wrong. (laughs) He's such a massive ride, but I would have had to get Willa to erase his memory or something. (laughs) Please stop talking about the initiative. It's so boring. I mean, who cares? We're not here for soldiers, but (laughs) sorry. We've sidestepped into Buffy. We've wound up in Buffy (laughs) with a different lesbian. um, Well, what makes this a very special episode? Is there something that resonates for you? Do you know what? I think it is. Honestly, it's about that time. So for me, it would be about 2007 or 2008 when I was living in the L word. And <laughs> I think possibly Sounder is a cautionary tale for writers <laughs> about where's the line. No, it absolutely is. And absolutely. That, that, is, that is the line. And also, it's both both in show and out of show, in that, you know, however much I, you know, wanted to be Jenny Schachter, and I kind of did, don't kill a dog. <laughs> There's no coming back from that. And also, as a writer, don't jump the shark. Keep yeah. it. Don't do something you can't come back from. And mm. I think the the sounder storyline is something, unfortunately, that the character of Jenny couldn't come back from. And after yeah. that, it only got more stupid. And until its inevitable demise in series six, and where she's involved in a whodunit, which felt ridiculous, which felt wrong for the series anyway. I mean, I think mm. Eileen Chaikin before Generation Q said, if you want to pretend series six didn't happen, you don't have to. <laughs> um, 
because it just nobody wanted a who done it in the L word like it was crap and kind of forgotten yes. about after the first episode until the last episode anyway but I think so that that's the cautionary tale there and that's I think why this episode really sticks out in my mind like make sure make sure that you always keep it true to the world you're creating in although we know later on in series five Jenny gets sounder too um, yes I was going to mention um, sounder the Pomeranian too. yeah which is, that I mean that is really dark that she gets another dog and calls it sounder oh she's brilliant I fucking love her <laughs> Oh, I know it's terrible and I know she is awful, but I, I still love they, her. I think, I think there's yeah. something... They were in on the joke. Eileen Chaikin and Mia Kirshner were in on the joke. And I think that's why it's so enduring. I I, abs- I think you're so right with that. Because I think that's one of the things... I think sometimes when I talk about the L word with people, there is a bit of a sense that, oh, it's this ridiculous show and it's all these kind of ridiculous plots and nobody really lives like that. But I think they are in on the, they're in on it. Mm -hmm. And it's supposed to be like that. It's soapy, it's fun. You know, you wouldn't get away with a show like this if it wasn't high, sort of this high drama. It would be boring. Yeah, so I I do think they're in on the joke a lot of the time, um, more than people give them credit for. Yeah, and I think if if there's one thing to remember, it's that... Just make it about the characters' relationships. We don't we don't need crazy plot lines. This is almost me counselling myself about my current screenplay. Um, <laughs> if the if the characters have amazing chemistry, it's enough to see them fall in and out of love. You don't need to make a film within a film where oh. a bunch <laughs> of actors are playing fake versions of the existing characters. You don't need a who done it. You just trust trust in the characters. And trust in the fans. Oh, that's a that's a yeah, that's good. That's good counselling. I need to hear that today. Oh, as well. oh there we go. So, thank you. Thank You're you. welcome. Thank you so much for talking to me today. What a treat it has been. Thank you for having me. It's been a lovely chat. Where can people find you, uh, and where do you want to be found? <laughs> I guess um, I'm at Juno Dawson on Twitter for now. I keep threatening to leave um, Twitter and Instagram. <laughs> And my new book, Stone of the Day, is out now. And it's brilliant. Thanks. It's brilliant. Thanks, Michael. Got freed. Uh, bye. Bye, everyone. <laughs> and there we go. What a fantastic chat with Juno Dawson. I really, really loved watching The L Word. And I have to admit, um, since I recorded this episode a couple of weeks ago, before we'd even heard of Miss Omricon, I went back and watched a lot of season four and a whole bunch of season five of The L Word. And I've had a fantastic time. Yeah, do check out Juno's book, Stay Another Day. If you're looking for a, a, a good kind of young adult contemporary Christmassy book that's going to put you in the festive mood, um, then I would definitely check that out. You've got a couple of days left before Christmas to get it uh, ordered or downloaded or whatever you do with your books. This is the last episode of a very special episode in series one, but we'll be back in, I'm going to take a bit of a, a little bit of time off and I'll be back in February. Um, and my first guest will be Miss Claire Biddles with an episode of Being Human called The Looking Glass, which which I had such a fun time watching and I can't wait to chat to Claire about that. And I can't wait to see you in the new year either. <laughs> Have a fab Christmas when it comes, if you celebrate. Otherwise, have a really lovely time and a great New Year's Eve, whatever you're doing. Uh, Be safe, be kind, and in the meantime, don't touch those dials. Watch it.